Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Blackware Intelligence Podcast. Today, we have two special guests, both from Blackware Solutions. We've got Joe Burnett and Tanner Davis. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time. It's nice to get some uh, other Blackware people on here with me to, to jam. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is my uh, podcast debut, so I'm psyched to be here. Nice. Yeah, thanks, Will. Yeah, absolutely. I guess we could first start with, um, for anybody who maybe doesn't know, who are both of you guys? Um, you know, how did you get into the space and what are your roles at Blockware? We could start with uh, Tanner first and then Joe. Yeah, for sure. So I work as an account executive here at Blockware. So, you know, with that, there's really two kind of hats I wear. The first is, you know, educating and bringing in new partners into our ecosystem. So you know, there's a pretty broad range of people from, you know, complete novices all the way up to, you know, I guess OGs, right? So I have to be able to, you know, work around, you know, different education levels and so on and get these people, you know, into our ecosystem and get going with mining. And then on the other hand, you know, I'm also managing our current partners. So with that, you know, it's more providing insights to help with scalability and, you know, just like you know, future investments, basically. So at the end of the day, you know, I'm working in general, you know, sales role, account executive, but at the same time, you know, just due to the nature of you know, the industry and what we do, it's a little bit of a mix, you know, as an analyst as well. So a little bit about like what you guys do, but more on, you know, the client facing side. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool, Tanner. Yeah. So I'm a mining analyst here at Blockware Solutions. So I mainly focus on Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining research. As you probably, many of you guys might be subscribed to the Blockware Intelligence newsletter. I do that. And I also create weekly mining, like educational videos on our YouTube channel. But before Blockware, I was an analyst at Mimesis Capital, which is basically a family office that has adopted the Bitcoin standard. And so we, we, we invested in a lot of different early stage Bitcoin companies like Unchained Capital, Foundation Devices, Swan Bitcoin. And when I, when I was there, we did Umbral. After that, I, I, I did technology consulting um, at EY. I was in their intelligent automation practice, but excited to be in the Bitcoin space now with here at Blockware. Absolutely. We're happy to have you here, man. Uh, before we get into kind of like the meat and potatoes, Joe, if you want to just kind of give listeners a high level of why Bitcoin, right? You know, before we even get into why mine Bitcoin, just kind of make the case. Although I think a lot of the listeners probably understand a lot of this, maybe some don't. So, you know, why get involved with Bitcoin? Why is it so important? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I feel like I like to answer this question because I think a lot of people are on Twitter or YouTube or wherever. And, you know, they may hear like very specific cases for Bitcoin and like why you should buy Bitcoin and why you should hold it. But not all the time do you like have a very clear, like succinct way of like, oh, this is what Bitcoin is. This is why it's valuable. And so kind of on Twitter, I, I kind of hammer down like a lot of these points, but I'll just quickly kind of run through like why I think Bitcoin is important. So I think, you know, a lot of smart people, when they first hear about Bitcoin, they kind of you know, think it's a bubble, right? Think it's a bubble or Ponzi scheme or whatever. And I think like a big reason as to why people think that is because like monetary value itself is, you know, kind of dependent on other humans. It's dependent on, on each other. And if like you're trapped on an island alone, like a monetary good serves no use for you, like dollars, gold, whatever. It's pretty, pretty worthless if you can't trade it with someone else. But just because, you know, Bitcoin's value is you know dependent on other humans doesn't necessarily mean like it's it's like a collective hallucination 
or like some people even like say it's like a cult, you know, I think it's important to really understand like why so many people are so passionate about Bitcoin. And I think it's because of Bitcoin's super unique monetary properties. And so it's kind of like a monetary shelling point where humans are like converging upon it because of its unique monetary properties. And these properties are, you know, immutable scarcity. There's only 21 million Bitcoin divisibility, portability, and other monetary traits like durability. And I think because of these unique monetary properties, people are, are converging upon Bitcoin. They're learning that, Hey, if I, if I buy this, I hold it. There's, there's no matter how high the price goes, people can't create more of it because there's only going to be 21 million. And so, yeah, I think generally the best way to think about Bitcoin is it's simply the world's best savings technology. Yeah. I think that's a, a great high level. Hey, Tanner, before we get into kind of, you know, current events, can we just have you kind of back up and give us an overview of what have been some of the major developments over the last call it year or two, but especially there was a lot going on last year. Um, so maybe if someone hasn't been keeping up with what's going on in the mining space, what are some of kind of the key events or developments that have occurred over the last 12 to 24 months? Yeah. I mean, I would say one of the biggest developments is really just the influx of capital, right? Everybody sees the market you see, you know, whether it's Riot or Marathon or, you know, these smaller miners that are starting to, you know, whether it's, you know, reverse merge or SPAC, whatever it may be, you know, public money is starting to flood into these, you know, mining firms, you know, somewhat as a way to gain exposure to Bitcoin, you know, if you're a fund that isn't able to buy Bitcoin. So just the general, you know, overall adoption and capital inflows have been, you know, a pretty crazy thing to watch over the last, you know, two years or so really since, you know, the, the, the crash down to 3000 with the liquidity crunch and equities markets and all of that. And then really on the mining side, the, the biggest thing has been, you know, just the exodus of hash power, right? So last summer, you know, there was a ban in China where a huge chunk of mining was taking place. This, you know, as these miners unplug, the network adjusts. So the difficulty was dropped by 50%, which means if you're in China, you had to unplug, which, you know, is bad for them. But if you're a miner elsewhere, all of a sudden your yield jumps dramatically and you're able to, you know, make twice as much Bitcoin as you would normally, assuming the market, you know, remained flat. So that was, you know, a pretty crazy event to see go down. And, you know, with that, you saw an influx of mining rigs on the market. So you know, it used to be pretty difficult to get hardware at all. There's you know, dramatic lead times across the board, but then all of a sudden you know, these Chinese miners are, if they can't find a place to put their machines, they'll sell them. And when they're in a crunch for cash, right, they're not, they're not willing to barter. They'll just sell it for cheaper than you know the market dictates for a quick sale. So that was really you know one of the more you know, unique events that we've seen, and you know it, it could happen again, but you know it's not something that's going to be a you know annual event. So that was really probably the most impactful thing I've seen personally. Tanner, what is what does this kind of mean for Bitcoin long term? As far as hash rate movement, I mean the the difficulty is just a signal of how much hash rate is on the network, which basically means, you know, how many machines are plugged in. As more machines are plugged in, that gives strength to the network, right? And people talk about like 51% attacks where a group of miners is able to basically, you know, rewrite the blockchain. As long as the way that Bitcoin works, you know, its network is growing so, so much. I mean, it's magnitudes larger than everything else, right? This, that, you know, boosts security across the board and makes it an even more attractive you know, asset, especially when you're looking at, you know, alternative cryptocurrencies to invest in. 
Absolutely. And, and Joe, I kind of want to pivot this over to you now and just talk about where have you seen some of that hash rate migrate? You know, this is something that you've written about in the newsletter. Uh, you know, for a while, there was a lot of what we like to call in the Bitcoin community FUD around the amount of hash rate that was um, held within the Chinese borders, right? And now with this event, we've started to see some of that hash migrate around the world, as Tanner just noted. So where have you seen the trend of that hash migrating to? Um, and where do you see that kind of playing out over the next year or so? Yeah, for sure. I think one key thing that this whole China migration has highlighted is that it's very important to deploy your capital into miners that are in a stable political jurisdiction. You know, a jurisdiction where you 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 can be confident that they're not going to ban Bitcoin mining overnight, and you don't have to close up your operations, and you can actually you know operate your machines. So we basically you know have have had many people become a lot more meticulous about where they're going to deploy capital into mining. Obviously, the U.S. has been probably the main beneficiary of, of all this capital, especially with public markets being able to, to raise literally billions of dollars um, for these you know, Bitcoin miners to deploy capital in the U.S. Um, but yeah, as far as the you know, hash rate projections for the next year and like where that's going to go, um, Galaxy Digital actually re- released a, a really good report uh, for Bitcoin mining. And, you know, I encourage you to read it. I'm sure we, we can put it in the show notes for this episode, but they basically projected that the total hash rate of the network would hit about 335 exahash by the end of the year. And I, from the beginning of the year, that's about, um, it, it would be about an 84% increase from like January 1st of this year. And so that's a, a pretty significant amount of hash rate, amount of new machines coming online. We kind of did our own analysis here at Blockware Intelligence, um, where we basically compiled all of the hash rate projections from public miners, and then also compiled, you know, just historical trends of of how much hash rate is able to grow. And from our analysis, we basically concluded that the, we would end the year around 300 exahash, so slightly less than Galaxy's projections, but still within the same ballpark. Basically, it kind of it kind of means that that hash rate is going to grow about 65% according to our projections. And so far it's, it's crossed our fingers. I mean, it's pretty, pretty much right on track, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, a large, large amount, like I mentioned of this future hash rate that's coming online is supposed to be coming from, from public miners. They're able to leverage, you know, the debt and equity markets that, you know, can raise significant amounts of capital in the U S they're financing hundred million dollar ASIC orders. They're building capital intensive mining infrastructure, and they're really scaling their operations. For example, Riot's expected to bring on, bring on about six exahash this year. Marathon's is expected to bring home bring on about 20.1 exahash. So all of these companies are bringing on a significant amount of hash power, um, and I kind of expect that to continue. Hey, Joe, kind of on that note, you know, at the end of 2019, we saw this massive kind of minor capitulation that kind of set the bottom of the bear market. Uh, with this access to like external financing, do you think the probability of some type of event uh, very similar to that is lower with this, uh, with the current market structure that we have now, or do you think it's just too hard to tell? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think you're basically saying like, is there going to be another minor capitulation event sometime soon? Yeah. Um, as far as soon, I don't think so just because I think mining is still significantly profitable. I think we still do have, and I can go into this later, but we still do have a lot of 
old generation machines on the network. So if price really did, you know, get hurt further from here, then yes, like there, there's going to be, you know, significant, not significant, but maybe 20% of the network is, is, you know, old generation machines so that those could possibly go away. Um, but yeah, I don't think we'll see anything necessarily like the massive difficulty, um, adjustments downward that we saw after the China mining ban. Like that was pretty crazy. And obviously it wasn't necessarily because of price. It was mainly just because of political jurisdiction rules. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One other kind of like price related question, and this is something that I feel like always gets kind of uh, debated between the Bitcoin community. And this is for either of you guys, because I don't have the answer is, does hash lead price or does price lead hash? Or is it just a very nuanced relationship and it's not, you know, it's kind of like did the, did the chicken lay the egg or that, you know, that, that whole kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I've tried to think about this for, for a while, but um, I think it's like, it's complicated, right? I think there's kind of two different prices for Bitcoin. There's a price or there's lots of prices, I guess, but the main price that we all know of is dollars per Bitcoin. Um, you know, that's just, you know, how much dollars you can buy per Bitcoin. There's rubles, there's yen, there's different, you know, fiat currencies that you quote Bitcoin in, but then there's also terahash per Bitcoin. And this is basically, you know, like the, the price that miners are paying per, per Bitcoin. And obviously miners are, are typically, you know, buying Bitcoin at a discount. So like the terahash may cost, you know, I don't know, seven cents per kilowatt hour of electricity. And with a new gen machine, you may be able to basically, the dollar equivalent of that terahash per Bitcoin might be like $8,000. So you might be able to mine a Bitcoin at $8,000, but that's just because you're kind of, if you're buying the terahash, which is from the ASIC from the miner, and then that's giving you actual Bitcoin. So I think it's complicated. Like I think both, both kind of work together, I guess. If the price gets too overextended and it becomes extremely profitable to mine, then I think a bunch of capital floods into mining, kind of like what we're seeing and what we've been seeing. And then I think if, if price, you know, falls, you know, significantly further, it makes more sense to just deploy capital into Bitcoin. Makes sense. Tanner, I kind of want to pivot it over to you and ask you, what are the difference between the different mining rigs? So someone coming into the space, they probably just see these like funky looking machines, right? And they don't really know what's going on, right? And they all kind of look the same. What is the difference between these different machines? What are kind of, I guess, the pros and cons of each of them and, um, you know, why would, why would one use, you know, one machine, for example, versus another and just kind of walk us through the, the high level of that? Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to on the hardware side, there's really two important specs. You know, the first is, is hash rate. So, you know, like we've been talking about, you want to maximize your hash rate. That's, you know, how much you know, hash you're putting on the network is, you know, determines your yield. So more hash means more yield. And then the other, you know, important factor is the efficiency. So, the way it's measured, you know, for mining rigs is generally watts per terahash. So for each terahash of computing power, you know, how much watts is being used to run the machine. So, you know, in an ideal world, you want to maximize the terahash and you want to minimize your watts per terahash. That gives you the lowest operating cost, but you're still, you know, making the most Bitcoin. So with that, you know, the way the hardware cycles have, you know, worked over the years is, as machines improve that, you know, boost terahash while, you know, increasing efficiency or decreasing the amount of watts per terahash. So like right now, there's there's really two key manufacturers, Bitmain, who produces the AMP miners, you know, the S19s that you know, most people talk about, and then MicroBT, who produces the Watts miners. 
So those are kind of the two big dogs in all this. They make pretty much all the Bitcoin machines that you would hear about people using. And with that, the current generation machines are somewhere in the, you know, about a hundred terahash range, give or take. And they're in the, you know, mid to low thirties, as far as, you know, Watts per terahash goes. So that like right now, that's about as good as it gets. And now, you know, with Bitmain putting out a new machine, it's you know, set to start shipping at the end of July here. That's the S19 XP. You know, that is 140 terahash. So that's a 40% increase in computing power, which, you know, directly impacts your yield. So you have a 40% more Bitcoin, you know, accrued when compared to the current machines. They're also a lot more efficient. So, you know, a general machine, we'll call it, you know, about 30 watts per terahash. The new machines are down to 21. So they're using, you know, on a rough one-to-one -one basis, you know, they're using about the same amount of power, but yielding 40% more. So it, it's, it's a definitely a significant upgrade. And it'll, you know, I, our opinion, it's what everyone's going to want to start moving towards, right? Historically, when we saw the S19s first come out in 2020, you know, right around the halving event, you know, people were kind of torn, you know, should I, do I want to invest money into these new machines or do I want to pick up, you know, sort of the current generation equipment? It's starting to see, Know, pretty favorable pricing just because, you know, demand always rushes to the new thing. So, I mean, in on paper, you know, it made sense potentially to wait for the S19s. And then, you know, we've seen how that played out and the people who bought S19s made an absolute killing, especially when you're comparing it to, you know, taking an older machine. So, you know, S17, for example, which is you know, on average, we'll say about, you know, 60 terahash, but uses you know, closer to 45 watts per terahash. So your operating cost is higher while your yield is lower. So, I mean, it's a no brainer, but it, it, you know, not everybody wants to, you know, put their money towards the latest and greatest, which is understandable, but historically it's been the best bet. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out moving forward, but really we're, you know, we're in kind of a unique spot where, you know, they're still producing what we call like the current machines, but there's new stuff, you know, rolling right around the corner. So I think we're going to start to see a transition, especially as more become available on the market. And with that, you know, we've seen Intel come along too. They're trying to put out their miners. I know they had, you know, their first prototype that was, you know, grossly underperforms what's considered like, you know, standard for new equipment. And then they more recently came out with a new machine that, you know, they've been selling more exclusively. They have some partners. I think Grid is one of their partners and there's a couple of others that are more on par with, you know, the new S19 XPs, but I mean, it's just going to take time, right? They're a new entrant and, you know, yeah, it's Intel, but at the end of the day, you know, Bitmain and MicroBT have been doing this and kind of have a strangle on the market for Bitcoin miners at this point. So I don't think Intel is going to come in, you know, and instantly just take over everything. It's going to take them, you know, a significant amount of time to really gain a lot of traction. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. It's kind of like, you know, you have, you have Apple and Android, and now a third player wants to come in. So, yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I guess you know, over the long term, competition is is good for the good for the consumer, right? So, yeah, definitely. Um, hey, Tyler, one thing that you said in a meeting, and I stole it from you and tweeted it out. I didn't give you any credit. Was this whole concept that Bitcoin miners are essentially dividend paying assets? So, can you, for listeners, expand on what that means? Yeah. So. You know, when you think about a mining rig, there, there's two trains of thoughts to, you know, kind of explain it, and they're not mutually exclusive. You know, the first is, you know, the, the narrative, right, which is always your, your dollar cost averaging Bitcoin at a discount, right? You're arbitraging power, 
and getting Bitcoin and it's, it's not proportional. If you took your operating costs, went on Coinbase and bought Bitcoin, you're going to get significantly less than if you, you know, ran that mining rig for a month or whatever time period. So that is, you know, the traditional way of looking at things. But when you come, when it really comes down to it, the mining rig is a, is a hard asset. It's, you know, it's tangible. You can hold it in your hands, right? Which is a little different than when you think about traditional you know, Bitcoin. So with that, you know, it, it has its own value associated. There's a whole secondary market. You know, it's very hard to buy rigs from the manufacturer. And you know, that's why Blockware Solutions exists. So it's a hard asset and, it, and it's a dividend paying asset. It pays you out Bitcoin on a constant stream. It's, you know, it varies in how much it would be, right? Depending on difficulty and then with the price of Bitcoin. But, you know, the terminal value is, you know, that's the term we use, which is really how much is your rig worth right now? So what we've seen with current generation equipment, so, you know, S19s and the What's Minor M30S Plus machines, is it's holding about a 0.95 correlation with the Bitcoin price. So if Bitcoin goes up in value, your machine is going up in value. So, you know, a, a unique way of looking at your investment over, you know, say a medium term time horizon, you know, but two, three years, when you're deploying capital towards the new machine, you can buy the machine, run it for a few years. If you're bullish on Bitcoin, which I assume you know, anyone investing in mining probably is, run it for a couple of years, Bitcoin has appreciated in value, and then you can you know, exit those machines, you know, either upgrade or you know, you know, invest elsewhere, you know, whatever you wanna do, and you could you know, cash out for more than you paid for the machines and you effectively mine Bitcoin for free for years. It's, it's, it's rare like as a trade to be that great, but we've seen people do it with that. Like I said before, the S19s, when they first came out, people bought them at the time, you know, rigs were not as expensive as they are now, but you know, Bitcoin was cheaper. And I mean, it makes sense. You know, if, if the yield is low, why would you pay as much for the machine? But at the same time, if it generates you more money, whoever's selling it is gonna charge you more. It's just, you know, supply and demand. So, you know, people bought S19s, let's say for, around $2,500, they mined for even a year, rode that into, you know, May, April, 2021, when Bitcoin was, you know, skyrocketing, sold their machines for $15,000. And then they also generated Bitcoin over that whole period. So it it's like the best trade you can make in the world. So a lot of people kind of forget, like, you know, the mining rig isn't just a sunk cost. There's always people buying machines. And yet, you know, the correlation is going to fall over time. It's just, you know, useful life gets extended out. And you know, what's just amazing about the mining you know, ecosystem is it, it's just a trickle down effect, right? As machines become you know, kind of outdated, less efficient, it just flows to the people with the cheapest power. That's why you see like S9s, for example, those are you know, six years old, not efficient whatsoever, you know, 11, 12 terahash, and they're still making up like 25% of the global hash rate. So all that stuff just flows downstream to places like, you know, Venezuela, where their power cost is just, you know, rock bottom. So there's always a market. It's trying to catch that edge where you ran your machines, you've made a great, you know, a nice chunk of Bitcoin, you know, you've held onto that the whole time, you're catching upside appreciation. And then, you know, you can sell your machines. So that's what we mean when we talk about, you know, dividend paying hard asset, which is, you know, it's not exclusive, you can't, you're still dollar cost averaging Bitcoin, it doesn't change anything. It's just, you know, a unique way of of looking at it. And it's something that, you know, I guess anecdotally, you know, I see all the time on my end, you know, talking with our partners and, you know, prospects, like 
especially for people that have long time horizons and you know capital to spend, they would rather wait, take you know this six month lead time, but they're getting a better machine that's going to last longer and has a highly you know likelihood of being worth a lot more money than you paid. So I mean, it's a no brainer if you really think about it. Yeah, no, man, that was super well said, and uh, I really, I really like that phrase. That I think, it, I think it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's very obvious, but it's like, it's you know, it's, it's very clean. It's very, very well said. Hey, Joe, um, want to kind of pivot it over to you. So, one thing that you've talked about is like, is, is mining rigs being like safe haven assets, in particular, like the newer generation ones. Um, do you see this as the case, and why? Yeah, it's such a good question. I actually am, am, am publishing a, a new research report. It'll be a uh, summary will be in the newsletter of Blockware Intelligence, but we'll also publish the full report on blockwaresolutions.com. But basically it, it's showcasing the idea of that new generation machines are actually, you know, safe haven Bitcoin assets, even though you might, you might think that and you'd be like, that's insane. Like, how could you possibly say that? But the way the Bitcoin network is set up and the way the difficulty adjustment is set up, they actually do behave as, as short-term safe haven assets. So I'm sure everyone here knows, but Bitcoin is a highly volatile asset. And that's kind of what scares away a lot of people from deploying significant amounts of capital on the Bitcoin. One, they don't understand it, but two, the volatility is just kind of scares them away. The new generation machine that, that Tanner was just talking about, that's going to be out very soon the S19 XP, if you're running it today, it would currently have an operating mar margin north of 80%, meaning you know, you're paying $2 for electricity and you're getting $10 worth of Bitcoin. Like that's, that's, pr that's pretty insane. So in the, in the report that I'm releasing, that's gonna showcase this a lot in a lot more detail. We basically use CoinShares research to break down the network based off what percentage of hash rate corresponds to like which machine so like which machines or what percentage of hash rate are s9s what percentage is s17 you know generation machines what percentage is s19 and currently about 20 percent of the network according to the coin shares research is s9s or s9 related machines and so using also old blockware solutions research we we can kind of overlay those machines with where they are in the electricity grid. So like how much are they paying for electricity? Typically the S9s are gonna, you know, like Tanner said, go towards more cheaper electricity sources because that's where they're still extremely profitable. And then the newer generation machines are just gonna rush to whatever hosting capacity is available. And they're gonna be willing to pay for, for more of like the hosting type rates because, you know, it makes the most sense to do that. And so with this, with the stress test, we basically said, all right, if Bitcoin falls to $19,000 and it sustains there for, you know, significant amount of time, we estimated that about 11.5% of the, the current hash rate would shut off. This would pretty much be entirely S9s that are operating, you know, into, you know, somewhat decent um, electricity rates. So they would turn off and difficulty would adjust, would adjust downward. But even after, you know, this crash occurred, you know, significant price crash, that's over, I guess if Bitcoin's at $40,000, it's over 50% price crash. But the operating margin of the S19 XP would actually still be north of 50%. So when difficulty and price, when price falls enough, difficulty starts falling. When difficulty starts falling, the new generation machines are actually going to start earning even more Bitcoin than they were before. 
And so not only does do you start getting more Bitcoin, but your Bitcoin break-even price, meaning like what does the price of Bitcoin need to be for you to make, you know, money for your machine to be profitable actually starts going down if the price goes down enough to where other machines, you know, have to turn off. And if you buy the newest generation machine, you know, the safe haven asset, you're kind of insulated against drawdowns because if it does draw down, then all of these old machines, which is literally everyone else must turn off their machines before you do, unless they want to operate unprofitably, which I don't think anyone would really want to do. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah, for sure. Just to go off that, you know, that, that's kind of a common thing you know, people always are concerned about is, you know, I'm worried, you know, Bitcoin price is super volatile. You know, I don't know if, if I'll be able to remain profitable. If you have the best machines on the market and you don't have, you know, outrageous energy rates, no matter what happens with the price, you are the best positioned person in the market, right? So it's some, it's always, you know, a waiting game, you know, people want to try and buy in at the perfect price or are nervous with, you know, whatever macro events or just, you know, general volatility. Like if you really think about it, you're, you're hedging your downside because if the market falls, you just make more Bitcoin. So I think that was super well said and something, you know, people, it kind of goes over a lot of people's heads. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, Tanner, while, while you're talking here, I want to ask you, like, what are some of the, I guess, trends that you're seeing anecdotally with our clients? You're dealing with our clients on a day-to-day basis. Um, you get your finger on the pulse with what's going on from, you know, the consumer side of, of things. So what are some of those trends that you're seeing? Is there anything that's really stuck out to you over the last year or so? Yeah, I mean, we've already you know hammered it in, but the, the push for XPs is it's already begun and it's just going to keep growing, especially as the lead time gets shut down. You know, for new entrants, it, it's hard to stomach, right? You're going to have to wait quite a while. And, you know, everyone's antsy. They want to start mining instantly, you know, whether it's a better idea to wait or not. So, you know, for the, for the most savvy clients, if they have capital to spend, they're going to put it towards XPs. It just, it makes logical sense from, a, you know, the dividend paying hard asset point of view. It makes more sense from the, you know, price volatility protection point of view it, it it's just the most logical trade you can make and it it's hard you know psychologically because you're you know you're making an investment and you got to wait which nobody likes to wait of course but it's just you know what i've seen the most and then with that is really just an influx of people either one with access to machines and nowhere to put them or you know trying to move machines you know as of recent either from you know kazakhstan and russia that that was those were two you know, pretty key spots besides the U.S. where miners migrated to from China last summer. So Kazakhstan, you know, said, you know, global issues for the last, let's say, six months, you know, internet shutdowns, so on. You know, Russia's on pace to be a global pariah, you know, pretty much already are. So it's just, if you're an investor, you want to protect your investment. It, it's illogical to, you know, even if, you know, U.S. power costs are a cent higher than it is overseas, like, you'd rather spend the money to know that your investment's protected in the U.S. You know, there, there's no recourse if, you know, the Russian government takes your machines. You know, there, you can't sue the Russian government. You're, you're out of luck. So, you know, with that, I would say hosting space is going to continue to become, you know, the, the biggest sort of, you know, crux for mining right now. It's super hard to find, you know, valuable hosting space that can be executed on, that, you know, has room to grow and so on. So, I mean, 
that's really where we've shined because we've been working on this since before the Chinese exodus. And, you know, we were a little bit ahead of the curve, but, you know, even a, you know, a year ago, it was the hardest part of getting into mining was, was getting rigs. You know, there was unlimited demand for rigs and, you know, people still had all sorts of infrastructure in place. And now it's just, you know, a huge weight on the infrastructure side. And it's, it's hard to do, you know, a lot of people think, you know, you just slap up four walls and plug the machines in, but, you know, there's so much that goes into building this all out. And with that, you know, power assets are all in a huge supply chain crunch. There's lead times for everything in the world at this point. So it's hard to do, you know, people are always trying to you know, build their own sites and so on. And, you know, it's awesome if you can do it, but it, it's just hard. So it's, if you can find a hosting provider, it, it's a no brainer and you can just spend more money on miners versus, you know, purchasing land and power assets and so on. It, it's just a, you know, complete no brainer on our end. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Joe, as we kind of move to, to wrapping it up, one of the you know main topics I wanted to hit on was just like zooming out and giving this very like broad quote unquote macro view of Bitcoin mining over call it the next five or 10 years. You know, why are you personally bullish on Bitcoin mining this decade? And what are some of the trends that you kind of foresee playing out moving forward? Yeah. So I published a, a pretty good research report on blockbarsolutions.com and it kind of talked about the 2020s being like this golden age for Bitcoin mining. And I think the reason for that is, is, is that price is kind of at a tipping point, right? Like I think Bitcoin is kind of on the cusp of, of like actual mass adoption and like, kind of like for the reasons I laid out the very beginning of this podcast, um, you know, it's, it's immutably scarce. Like you can't change that. So I think more and more people are, are starting to learn that they're, you know, feeling more comfortable that like, Hey, like Bitcoin doesn't die. Like it keeps existing, even though it, it may crash 80%, you know, every few years, it keeps coming back. And not only does it come back, it comes back magnitudes larger. And so I think like this idea that that price could actually grow faster than hash rate, or at least compared to historically, like historically hash rate grew ex extremely fast. Now hash rate is kind of it's still growing really fast, but it's not growing as fast. And price is still growing really fast on like a broader longer term time frame, And the reason hash rate is not growing as fast as it once was is because ASICs are commoditizing. What does that mean? So basically it means that ASICs, you know, the ASICs, like the XP, it is more efficient. And it's, you know, like, like Tanner says, about 40 more, 40% 40 more efficient, but it's not like compared to the first ASIC compared to the second ASIC that was ever created. Like that was a magnitude uh, change in efficiency. So immediately those old ASICs, you know, were, became extinct, unusable, and these new ASIC kind of pushed them out really fast. But now that these ASICs are kind of commoditizing and the likely the ASIC that gets developed after the XP, it won't be like exponentially better than the XP. Like you'll still be very competitive. You'll be able to compete. It'll be slightly better, but you still like, it's not gonna push out the XP immediately. So these new generation machines that exist today, they're gonna be able to last for significantly longer than they have in the past. And if price, you know, continues, continues to do like what it's done in the past, where it goes up like actual magnitudes or multiples, then these miners are gonna be, you know, sitting on, on gold mines, basically. These machines will just be spitting off massive, massive cash flows and they could actually last for a significant amount of time. And going off that, you know, something that is also you know, not commonly considered is really just the size of the network. 
you know, the, the you know, law of large numbers is in play, right? You know, adding one to one is a hundred percent increase. Adding, you know, one to trillions is a much marginally smaller increase. As Bitcoin hash rate grows, you know, more machines getting plugged in has a diminishing effect on difficulty. So, you know, that's just another thing to consider as the network keeps growing, you know, it, it becomes harder to sustain these large jumps. If Bitcoin goes up a hundred percent tomorrow, it is literally impossible for difficulty to follow a hundred percent in the next, you know, difficulty jump with one, the amount of machines required to do that and two, just the actual infrastructure to make it happen. You know, that's, that's really well put. Um, one of the one of the main things I wanted to hit on as well was just the kind of ESG FUD. That's been a huge narrative that's gotten pushed to kind of, you know, FUD around Bitcoin and in specific, obviously, Bitcoin mining. So, Joe, do you want to kind of hit on that? And uh, what do you kind of have to say to, to refute this? Yeah. So I think Bitcoin mining, like we're saying, you have the new gen machines that are going to be plugged in, you know, wherever at that top tier, you know, highly secure hosting facilities. But then you have the old gen machines that are still useful. They still create terahashes, but they have very low efficiency. So you can only operate them in special areas. Basically, those machines move towards areas of the world where there's a bunch of wasted energy. For example, natural gas people. They occasionally, if they can't sell their natural gas or put it in a pipeline, they have to flare it. So they're literally just wasting excess energy. If Bitcoin miners, and this is already happening, like ConocoPhillips, one of the largest oil and gas companies in the US, just announced that they're working with someone to do this in North Dakota, I believe. They can partner with someone, put the ASICs next to the natural gas site where you know they were flaring it and it was just actually bad for the environment. Now they plug in those miners instead. They can actually make Bitcoin. They can buy these miners for cheap because no one really wants this, not anymore. They can make more money. And then all of a sudden, you know, the flaring is eliminated. So you actually can use wasted energy to create, you know, more Bitcoin. In addition to that, it, Bitcoin actually helps balance energy grids. So for example, if you set up a huge uh, mining farm in Texas, you can negotiate a deal with ERCOT, which is basically their grid and say, all right, we want this, you know, facility to have power, you know, 98% of the time. And whenever there's a strain on the grid, for example, maybe the grid is powered by solar partially uh, and it's in the middle of winter and there hasn't been sunny for like five days. The grid is strained. Everyone's running their heaters. Now, ERCOT can just say, all right, we'll turn, we'll turn you guys off this huge Bitcoin mine. You guys cannot run for an hour or so or however long they need. And we can actually source that power and send it to consumers or, or other businesses that actually really need it. And so it kind of increases the reliability of these grids and adds more like redundancy and even incentivizes more power development, incentivizes more nuclear plants, more solar, more wind. Um, so it's kind of like a solution, I guess, to ESG, in my opinion, rather than a problem. Miners are the craftiest bunch, right? They want the cheapest power, which is, you know, either renewable or, you know, wasted energy elsewhere. So regardless of if the you know miners actually cares about ESG or not you know they're supporting it because they want to boost their margins yeah that's that's really well said hey Tanner you know we we really kind of laid out throughout this whole podcast um you know all these kinds of current events going on with mining but as well you know 
what mining is, how does it work? Um, you know, where are the specs on different machines and what are kind of the different aspects that go into being a Bitcoin miner? Um, if, if listeners are interested, why mine with, why mine with Blockware? You know, um, I think maybe not many people listening, they listen to the podcast, maybe they don't know fully what we do per se, but, you know, can you kind of just run listeners through, you know, what do we do and, and why is it more advantageous for them to look at mining with us versus some of the other market participants? Yeah, so what we do is vertically integrated mining. So we're able to source and sell you the mining rigs that we've been talking about. We're able to put these mining rigs in our you know, hosting facilities so we can you know, run them. We have, you know, at industrial power rates to you know, maximize your, your margins, right? You're getting the lowest operating costs while maximizing your hash rate. And then on top of that, we operate a mining pool. It's all you know, domiciled in the US. So we're able to you know, take care of the technical backend, get your miners you know, running and then on the pool. So you're able to remotely, you, know, you can monitor performance and revenue statistics, and then you just get your revenue pushed out to you every 24 hours. So, you know, at the highest level, you're able to place down, you know, a capital investment. We basically take care of all the, you know, intermediate steps, and then you're generating returns on the investment. It knocks down all of the barriers to entry. It makes it easy for, you know, if you're a, a hedge fund, you're not going to go out and set up a mining facility. But if you want exposure to Bitcoin mining, it, you know, a company like Blockware makes it super easy to do. And then, you know, on top of that with like, you know, our Blackware intelligence arm, right? We're able to provide, you know, unique insights into the market more so than just sell you stuff, right? So we're combining, you know, analytics in our intelligence arm with, you know, the vertically integrated you know, mining stack that we provide for, you know, a true holistic solution here. So you know, we're able to provide support, whether it's on the hardware, hosting, pool, you know, any possible thing you could need, you know, we're able to do. And then with that, we're also providing, you know, actual insight to our client base to, to, you know, help them grow, right? It's good for everybody. We want everybody to win and grow. And by combining both of these, you know, it makes it a lot easier for them to do so. And Tanner, where can people go to get in contact with us or you specifically? Yeah, so you can always reach out through our website, blockwaresolutions.com, or, you know, you can shoot me a note personally. My email is just tanner at blockwaresolutions.com, or, you know, reach out to sales at blockwaresolutions.com, and we're easy to get in touch with. Shoot us a note on Twitter, you know, follow our Telegram channels. We'll put all the links in the, you know, description on the video, all that, but we're, you know, we're easy to get in touch with and, you know, want to help everybody. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure. You guys crushed it, um, you know. I think um, we touched on pretty much everything that that we all had in mind and uh, and then some. So before wrapping up, I do want to give you guys an opportunity to plug yourselves in if you want to plug in your Twitter or if you have any kind of final thoughts to, to wrap up. So we'll start with Tanner and then you, Joe. Yeah, I mean, sh- you know, shoot me a note, Tanner at BlockwareSolutions.com, like I said, or, you know, my Twitter is Tanner Davis 315. So yeah, give me a follow if you want, but I'm easy to find. So just track me down. Yeah, and I'm Joe Burnett on Twitter. My handle is at iii capital. I was once three capital on Twitter. Um, but yeah, if you if you want to email me, feel free to email me. I'm Joe at BlockwareSolutions.com. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for the time. This was great. Yeah, thanks, Will. Thanks for having us. Talk soon. Bye. See ya.